In this first episode of Health Autonomy at the End of Empire, we talk with Frank, co-host of this podcast and member of the Woodbine Space in New York. We'll trace his path towards med school, autonomous politics, and views around health autonomy. Later in the show, we'll be getting into the nuts and bolts of launching a health autonomy space, how they're dealing with the biomedicalization of care versus alternative practices around care, and the relationship of health autonomy to electoral politics and the activist scene today. Welcome to the Health Autonomy at End of Empire podcast on Mask FM, a semi-monthly investigation into the struggle to create health autonomy and the revolutionary care to build a new world. If you're interested in supporting our network with a monthly donation, please visit patreon.com slash maskfm. Hey everyone, this is Frank. Welcome to Health Autonomy at the End of Empire. We made it all the way to episode number one. In this episode, we wanted to do something different and share some of the work going on in here uh, in New York in the Woodbine Health Autonomy Working Group, among other projects. We'll also be getting into some of the analysis and experiences coming out of the Woodbine space and how it's shaping our understanding here in New York of health autonomy and its transformation of everyday life. But before getting into our first interview, we wanted to start off with an apology. Damn, already? Yep. Apologies for occasionally dragging in new terms or concepts, but we swear it comes from an autonomous place. Bringing in some new concepts helps us and other collectives we've been collaborating with to understand each other's work better and build transparency. We refuse to academicize or bureaucratize the most purest of desires, whether we call it care, mutual aid, or whatever other terms people prefer to use. Okay, so in this first episode, we'll meet one of the friends involved with the Woodbine Space. It's Health Autonomy Working Group, among other projects. It's a space that came together during an interesting time following the spread of street, square, and workplace struggles here in the U.S. and globally. And its working groups have created new facets of a growing solidarity economy that gives us new ways of thinking about how we can reproduce ourselves socially and materially. Or in other words, how do we heal, feed, and house ourselves, as well as recuperate our bodies and ecosystems in order to build a better alternative? So here, we'd like to introduce Frank. Hey, what's up? Welcome, Frank. (laughs) So um, before we get into Woodbine and your work there, I just wanted to trace how you got here in the first place. How did you decide to get into healthcare? Uh, yeah, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for doing the work for for letting me talk. But um, kind of building off what we talked about on the, on the uh, introductory episode, you know, when I first started getting into health and and healthcare, I had a much different view on on medicine. Um, and I always like to joke around that I I got really into medicine because I broke my arm a bunch and uh, wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon for the Mets. And I had this whole trajectory. I was raised super right wing. Uh, like, you know, a lot of, a lot of crazy Sean Hannity radio talk and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I wanted to be, I was going to be this hotshot orthopedic surgeon. I was going to go to like Harvard or some whatever school and go to some crazy residency and be driving BMWs by the time I was 30. Um, and, uh, you know, pretty, pretty normal path, I guess. Um, and in college though, I kind of, I kind of got introduced to this idea, kind of what I was talking about last time, this idea that, um, uh, of oppression and, and, and that there are systemic problems, uh, that, that kind of run throughout our, our culture. Uh, and so this is really the first time that I was exposed to, uh, cultural critiques or social critiques of, of, of the world really. Uh, and as I kind of progressed through like learning about racism and, uh, a kind of neoliberalism and structural adjustment programs, uh, I became more and more introduced to this, uh, the structural aspects of, of what this oppression was. So, um, uh, so yeah, that, that change, you know, I had already had this interest. I was really interested in the science of things, uh, as I feel like most people who want to go into health are interested in helping people in whatever capacity. Um, but as I started learning more about this kind of like, uh, alternative world, you know, this, this other universe of, of oppression in the world, um, I became more interested in international health. Um, and looking at social justice work, uh, especially around like social determinants of health, uh, which is a term that kind of 
broadly encompasses how social factors influence health. So say how poverty influences and racism influences uh, people's health. So I, I was really focused on using healthcare in that, that realm. Right. Okay. But were there, were there role models, let's say in your pre-med classes, other doctors, uh, people in med school that, that influenced you, or was it something that came completely from outside of that world? Um, yeah, I, I say this with a little bit of a smile, but I, I definitely was influenced by Che, like the model of Che. Um, you know, the, the, he was a dermatologist, for those of you who don't know, but um, you know, that idea of how uh, his experiences through health uh, formed his you know, then later on revolutionary ideas. And obviously not to uh, idealize Che, uh, there's obviously lots of critiques that I think are super valid, but for me, being in a young college kid, that was like very influential. Um, and in, in med school or kind of pre-med right before going into med school, I was really influenced by Paul Farmer, um, and uh, especially his book, Pathologies of Power, uh, during med school, which I would say was, was a life altering book. Um, you know, I've come to have a lot of critiques actually of Paul Farmer at this point in my kind of career, um, and, uh, and the development models that I think a lot of the organizations that follow, um, the farmer model are involved in. But for me still, you know, this, Pathologies of Power was uh, 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 the first time I really was introduced to uh, structural uh, systems of oppression, specifically around medicine right. um, and spe- specifically around thinking how, uh, how medicine could be used to form the foundations of uh, a counterculture or, or kind of a revolutionary culture. Right. Um, you know, there were, there were people in, in pre-med and, and in med school who I admired for their work. Um, I did struggle a lot with finding people who I think viewed medicine in a similar way that I did. Um, there was a lot of like social justice activism around medicine, uh, and, and hence why I became involved in that. Um, but especially now as I kind of look to where my career path is headed, uh, I, I don't see many examples, uh, in kind of the mainstream culture. Um, you know, but that being said, there have been tons of people who you know teachers or other students who who lent me rant you know the, the right. late night political rants uh you know forced me to to solidify my ideas uh but also gave me just personal support and and, and love and care yeah exactly. uh, so i always want to respect that yeah and and you during residency uh part of your rotations were were in the public hospital and and this public hospital also was responsible for caring for a large number of male uh, prison inmates and you were involved in in a project around um, prison abolition and it was called the prison liberation project right and and can you tell us a little bit about that how does someone go from you know textbooks around anatomy and 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 cell physiology to uh, a prison abolition project in the middle of of, a intense residency schedule i'm guessing yeah so i i um I would not recommend that this is the most sane way to do residency, but the way that I thought about residency, um, and for those of you who don't know, residency is the post-medical school period uh, where it's essentially like an apprenticeship. Uh, it's uh, historically in, intense, insanely intense, you know, 80 hours, 100 hours a week um, of work, and, and it's very grueling. Um, and the thought is to get to a certain level of expertise in a short period of time. Um, that being said, it, it can also be very life life transformative and, and it really forms the way you're going to think about your career. Um, and I picked residency in New York city because at that time, a lot of, uh, post occupy things were happening. Uh, it just seemed like this between here and Oakland, these were like the two hubs of where a lot of cool projects were coming out of. And so I wanted to be part of that. Uh, so I came to one of the, the big public hospitals here in New York city and, uh, uh, as much as it pains me to say, I think I had a little bit more idealism than I than I originally thought that I did. And uh, there was this rec- you know feeling that uh, I'm going to go to this public hospital and I'm going to uh, you know uh, change the world uh, little by little through the populations of New York City. Obviously, not that idealistic, but um, but a little bit idealistic. And uh, one of the things that I really noticed was that while I I believe the public hospital system is very valid and really offers a lot of uh, critical infrastructure for health in New York City, that uh, these infrastructures are still governed by these policies and bureaucracies that uh, really I don't think uh, put human rights 
and uh, and definitely not a kind of countercultural revolutionary character to to the thought of Kara that um, that they still have this uh, capitalist mentality, this exploitative mentality, um, you know, and the, and also this mentality that Western medicine is the only way to do medicine, kind of that's the only way to talk about health, um, and so. One of the things that I noticed specifically, and this is kind of right around, uh, this is pre-Black Lives Matter, but um, you know there was a lot of work around Rikers, uh, the big uh, the big uh, jail here in in New York City, and just a lot of things it was right before the uh, a lot of the the uh, the huge cases of uh, litigation now around Rikers, you know, in, inmates dying because of either lack of health care or because the the corrections officers uh, beat them, and and it was recorded on video. So there's a lot of talk around incarceration right around um, uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, The New Jim Crow really kind of changed the, the dialogue around mass incarceration. And uh, uh, at this hospital, uh, one of the areas of the ER is where uh, prisoners from uh, or inmates from uh, the Rikers Island come in and also where NYPD uh, uh, arrestees come in who need medical clearance. And so they come in, uh, and this is recognized now as a vulnerable population. You have your freedoms taken away, um, and uh, we as doctors are taught that there are certain vulnerable populations where you have to exceed uh, your normal kind of care. So infants and children as one example, and elderly patients as another. And we're actually what we call mandated reporters. So if we suspect that a kid comes in and we think that they're being abused, we um, we are penalized if we don't report that. Uh, and there is no penalty for uh, reports without um, uh, that are essentially later on proven false. And this is a way to protect these populations that we view as being vulnerable. And uh, as the dialogue was increasing, it becomes more and more clear that uh, these inmates, people who don't have freedoms um, to, to access care whenever they want, um, are also super vulnerable. And so one of the thoughts was, um, or you know, to kind of go back, but then at the same time, these institutions don't necessarily protect the vulnerabilities uh, in a way that I think really uh, emphasizes human rights. And so one of the ideas with this prison, li- prison liberation project was how do you work within the institution to create fundamental tensions in the institution itself? So this is kind of the idea of um, are there ways that you can manipulate uh, the policies uh, to benefit, you know, maybe more of a radical uh, perspective. And so the idea was... Um, that especially when people come in from Rikers or from NYPD, because of this, the difference in socioeconomic class, the difference in experiences with the police, um, that most doctors and nurses and health professionals um, probably have had either always positive interactions with the police or uh, neutral interactions with the police. And they're also coming from a socioeconomic status where you know, wealthier people view the police more positively. Uh, and obviously, uh, those who are in lower socioeconomic classes, especially people of color, um, have uh, usually very negative attitudes towards the police. Um, but that because of that, when people come in, especially NYP- NYPD arrestees who have not been convicted nor charged with anything, there is always an assumption that if you're under custody, you probably did something wrong. And so therefore, maybe you deserve whatever has happened. Uh, and obviously, the NYPD has been implicated and a- accused and, and convicted of many, many, many areas of abuse. Um, and so then it kind of becomes that if the health professional who is has committed to promoting human rights um, and somebody comes in saying that, you know, I was either abused or I'm not getting the right health care or, you know, uh, whatever thing, um, that who's the health professional going to support? Is the health professional going to support the kind of corrections like public safety, you know, NYPD, or are they going to support this individual, this vulnerable individual's human rights? Uh, and that usually because of these social, these differences in socioeconomic class that they, um, they will tend towards um, subsuming to authority, be right. the NYPD, Rikers, whatever. And so we created this group to create um, policies that, force people uh, within the health institution to side with the the human rights of the the person so so what does it tell you i mean how did you feel when you came you came to the emergency room and the architecture of the space facilitates 
sort of a productive, almost assembly chain where NYPD and corrections can bring in inmates. They're processed very efficiently. They're in, they're out. Um, they go for their arraignments and, and both the architecture as well as the relationship of the staff seem to be really productive with, with the COs and, and the police. So you, you created this, this project and was it, was it a way to sort of disrupt that flow or like, how were you trying to challenge that? Yeah, it was kind of a, a mix. It's, it was a way to, it was a way just on a, a, a tangible level for yeah. people who had problems uh, to come in and, and have their human rights protected a little bit more institutionally. Obviously, you're already under detention. You're in the hospital system. Something bad has already happened. It's like very little in like a grand scale of things. Um, but it also forced the conversation within the health profession uh, or within the, the health uh, professionals at work of why are we doing this? Uh, and there has to be the recognition if if we are uh, mandating via the policies that if somebody says that they are abused, uh, you have to you have to act on that and you have to to assume that it's real. Then there has to be a conversation about why is it that we have to assume that this is a vulnerable population. And so the hope with it was that then through that you could use the policies to back up that uh, we think that these are vulnerable populations because there is a an inherent tension between the police and the correctional system and health professionals and that this camaraderie um, should not really happen that 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 how can we and this is a whole idea of, that we talk a lot about of like how do you retake hospitals that we reown the emergency room that the emergency room is a sanctuary where human rights are protected uh, and while it's small and, and very isolated um, this is a place where i feel like uh, correction correctional officers and NYPD, NYPD officers should, should feel like they have to be on their best behavior, that this is not a place that you can dump, you know, the guy you just beat up or the guy who, who got roughly arrested, uh, or in Riker's case, which is what has happened, that this is not a place that you're going to come and, 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 uh, dump your mistakes, right? That then we are going to force you to have accountability, uh, mm -hmm. in your institutions. And what was the reaction of staff and also uh, people who, who were arrested or detained who came in who received this help? Um, what, what, what was their feedback? Yeah, so it was kind of interesting because we had a few lectures within the residency itself around like mass incarceration. And it did spark an interesting conversation about, uh, you know, a lot of people, some people had their, their parents are, are officers. They come from like a, an, a military or army background. Um, I would say most, especially doctors, um, uh, uh, positively view authority figures. Um, and so there was kind of this like, well, why, you know, if somebody got arrested, they obviously did something I've never been arrested, you know, that kind of the mentality. Um, and so that was kind of an interesting conversation. I think around most, most maybe of like the, the, um, patient, uh, patient care technicians and say maybe the, the, um, uh, not not licensed or not certified uh, health professionals there was more of an understanding that yeah you know the police the police can do some fucked up things um but that how can we also recognize that like you know we need police at this point in the hospital like if somebody gets out of hand that not everyone who comes in is 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 totally innocent that there are some people who have done some like not great things um and uh yeah so it was it was a great way to kind of talk about these larger issues of like mass incarceration, but through a very tangible way. And I think most mm -hmm. people um, have viewed it pretty positively or right. even neutrally, which is kind of interesting because it, it flies under with the, the, the language of policies, like a bureaucracy, um, right. which, you know, most people don't have too many opinions about bureaucracy. It's just like what you do. Right. Exactly. Um, so, okay. Um, and, and later on uh, a group that, a lot of listeners might know about um, that was active before the Florence Johnson Collective. Uh, for for a while, you were you were working with them, and and how did that sort of influence your your work around health autonomy and, and while you were in residency? Yeah, I think it was always great. Like one of the cool things with coming to New York City was just being exposed to all these different ideas, and um, I think even this idea of health autonomy, which the Florence Johnson Collective was was trying to work on, was you know, how, how, what does care mean? You know, this question of care and like, what does health mean? And so I think those conversations around, um, 
what does it mean to organize uh, workers, the, the home health aides, um, but also start talking about these larger things around um, institutional policies, but then also building our infrastructural capacity to deal with health and deal with care and, and kind of broadening a conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and besides some of the experiences here in New York, you also had a chance to travel and, and meet people and healthcare workers from other countries. So what, you know, what were some of those countries, some of those encounters and, and influences? Yes, I, I've been super lucky uh, and I've been able to travel a little bit and, uh, and go on these kind of uh, public health uh, expeditions, I like to call them. But um, yeah, and, and overall, it's, just, it's been really humbling uh, and, and really helped shape how I kind of think about things. Um, and, you know, it's also, I have to admit, I have this like itch about traveling. Like I, I just love traveling. I want to do international health before med school. So I always have that part of me. I did, uh, work in Guatemala and Haiti, uh, before and during med school. And, uh, especially in Haiti, it was kind of like 10 months after the earthquake. I was, I, I really saw the, the, the complete negativities around international health, like how international health taken to its worst extreme could just be devastating for a country. And uh, it was kind of your classic under-resourced, underutilized, tons of money coming in, uh, living on like a Christian mission kind of thing. Like, you know, it felt like a plantation or at least the, the, the one of the areas there looked like a plantation. And, and um, hmm. yeah, it didn't leave you with a good feeling about uh, international work. Did you did you come come to this conclusion that there was a difference between let's say like the charities, the savior complexes, the the NGO approaches to international health versus uh, maybe what some of the less like what some of our listeners might be involved with with, with more collaborations and exchanges and um, connecting with other groups at a more sort of functional level. Yes. I mean, that was like the, the big difference that uh, in a lot of these countries, a lot of the programs I was seeing, there was this kind of, you know, white person's burden type thing. Like we're going to go and, and, and save all these things. Um, and yeah, I saw that and I, I really didn't want too much to do with it. And then I became involved in different types of international health. So I worked with this group, Doctors for Global Health, um, which follows a model of accompaniment. Yeah. Um, and they are very based in uh, what they call a liberation medicine model, which is mm-hmm. loosely influenced by liberation theology, which is a movement in the 60s uh, in Catholicism. But essentially, the, the basic idea of liberation medicine is that you, you observe, you observe what's going on, you understand the situation, uh, and then you judge, you, you, you make a decision that there is a good and there's a bad here. Um, and I'm going and then you act on that. So then you support the one that you believe is, is doing the right thing. And through, through Dr. for Global Health, I went to El Salvador to a community up in the, the northern part of the country that was kind of a haven for the FMLN guerrillas and, uh, and has really created a town around uh, resisting, resisting the new government, even though it's supported by the FMLN, uh, is, is now implementing uh, you know, a lot of privatization, neoliberal type policies. But this idea that that they are going to struggle on the ground, that they have always struggled on the ground and they, they will build the structures that they need uh, and not depend on the government. Uh, and then through, through this group as well, I went to Chiapas uh, in the first year of residency, uh, which for me was, was just a humbling experience. Um, and, uh, and visiting one of the Zapatista communities for a couple of weeks and, and living and working with them um, was, uh, was overall just very humbling and, 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 you know, this, the, the power of love, like that idea of that love, uh, I think in like the post hippie culture, there's this huge push towards like love as like, why can't we all just get along and love everyone? And there it's this idea of love is like a verb that, um, because you love your family, because you love the land, like you're willing to die for it. Um, and to see people involved in that type of struggle and, and have, having created this culture of that, uh, was for me just very inspiring. Um, and since then I've been able to go back to chapels a few times and I work with a doctor there who, um, who's a Mexican doctor who uh, has been very involved in, in the struggle for the last uh, 15 years, who helps train health promoters, uh, working on the Zapatistas, uh, own health autonomy. So not coming to, to serve per se, but more helping them build up their capacity so that they don't need us to keep coming. Um, and then, uh, a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to be able to go to Rojava, uh, in the Northern part of Syria and see how, uh, the, the autonomous Kurdish culture is being built. And, and one of the reasons I, I wanted to go there, 
was, um, you know, this question of how do we build up capacity uh, and how do we build up scale uh, while still maintaining these kind of radical revolutionary ideals. Um, and so Rojava, you know, unfortunately in the midst of a, a horrific war uh, and just really under-resourced and, and fighting, but, but really working to build a new society, uh, which for me was, was very inspirational and it, and it seems like it has been inspirational for many, many, many people. Um, and so that was, uh, yeah, just, you know, thinking, you know, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but how do we start building up our capacity in a real way? That if we view this as like a theoretical war, uh, or a, a real war, a tangible war, then what are the steps that we start, need to start taking to, in order to prepare ourselves? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, recently I just went to Athens um, to go uh, uh, meet comrades there, deepen ties there, a lot of our, our uh, mutual friends, um, and also see a lot of the solidarity clinics and, and ways that you can um, walk the line between building material autonomy, you know, doing mutual aid, but uh, uh, alongside these, these very powerful kind of... Uh, um, uh, movements on the street, you know, a lot of anarchist, uh, uh, type movements, uh, and, and how those two actually build each other, uh, which was, which was really cool to see. Yeah, exactly. So, so on that note, you you shifting from a lot of the transformations and influences that you had from the perspective of a healthcare worker, uh, you then got involved with Woodbine, something completely unrelated to your work. And, and this isn't something common that we see, and even like progressive coworkers who uh, who usually tend to be more involved in sort of like the Affordable Care Act or single payer models or health reform, uh, but you got involved with something that was completely unrelated to health. Uh, so a lot of your travels, Florence Johnson, uh, the Prison Liberation Project was involved with health, and Woodbine wasn't. So, um, what? Why? Why did you get involved with that? And 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 how did that then come back and influence your your work around health autonomy yeah i think it's uh, uh it's an interesting question um and that yeah for me i think one of the the reasons is that uh and i say this to like health professionals maybe that usually there is this idealism that we're sold that we can change things through health like through medicine itself uh, a doc, like i know for myself a lot of doctors feel that that you know, I go, I'll go work in a, a, a public hospital and that's like my service. And it, it's not so much to discount that because I do believe that that is a beautiful thing as well. Um, and something that I, that I would aspire to. Um, but that one of the things that really, that really attracted me to say Woodbine and uh, even this, this idea of autonomy, uh, was that there is a, a, a certain objectification about medicine and about our lives and how is it that we can think of our lives, um, through our own lens that we are part of a revolutionary struggle uh, and that in, if we truly believe that then we have to our our life has to be involved in that uh, you know the classic the, the personal is always political so the structure of our lives the way we surround the, the people we surround ourselves with the projects we become involved in the house we live in um, they all lead towards how we're going to act um, and you know, for me, I came here uh, after after the Occupy, like, kind of like I said, and, and a lot of the movements there and, be, and worked with a bunch of different groups in New York City for like a year and a half. And uh, and I remember very clearly there was the climate march here in 2014. And what was it, like 400,000 people in the streets. Right. Uh, massive numbers, lots of organizing around it, you know, lots of cool energy. We're like, oh, this is great. Something's going to happen. Right. Something will happen, right? And I remember being on the the i remember i had for whatever reason i had to go to work um the day the day before the march and i i went to the central headquarters for the fdny for this rotation that i was at and i was like um to the chief for the fdny or something uh you know i was like oh like what are you doing for the the climate march and i remember him saying like oh what climate march and in my head i remember like four hundred thousand people how can you not like get ready for that right. and and then I went to the march and it was, it was beautiful. Like it was cool. You know, whenever you get 400,000 people, it's always cool. But then at the end of the day, the city just moved on as if nothing had happened. And then they had the flood wall street the next day, which was a, it was a great, you know, action. And, and it, it had some, some, some beautiful moments, but then wall street on Tuesday was fine and still structure and still working fine. Right. Um, and I remember thinking like, wow, like this, this whole path of activism 
is it's over it's dead like it doesn't do anything it has no power and um i remember one of the things that uh actually at woodbine i just had heard about woodbine and i went to woodbine and and they were talking about the climate struggle and and in relation to the climate march and and one of the things that they had talked about was that uh, at the time the rockaway pipeline there was a lot of movement around the rockaway pipeline is that you can't fight the pipeline if your very existence is dependent upon the pipeline that you you can only go to a certain level and i think that that's like what i've seen within activism is at the end of the day because we don't create the conditions to actually change our life to actually like involve our lives um we will only ever go so far uh, that we won't ever take that next step of really working to undermine the system because our whole livelihood is dependent upon the system um and so for me, it actually became life-saving. Like Woodbine was, was this thing where I could go and I, you know, you get so lost in residency that there, you need that, that, that air. You need that breath of fresh air of being like that. There is a reason why I'm going through this. It's not to have a nice car and it's not to have a nice house and it's not for some career. But it's because I'm working to build these skills to build a community that will save me. And not in the not in the existential sense of like it will, you know, be a, uh, like a, a Jesus Christ kind of moment, but that um, that in response to the massive problem, like the climate change, ISIS, you know, the opiate epidemic, these like massive problems that we like, you know, we just culturally don't have answers for. Right. Like to me, the only way to truly actually be human is to to accept that these things are real and that we have to collectivize and work towards answers. And your career, sure as shit, is not going to give it to you. So that's a huge that's a huge leap from institutional training. You, the doctor, the patriarch, the gays coming in, providing the intervention, having the scalpel. Uh, a friend in Uruguay described it as like the Don Quixote complex. You know, the one doctor who comes in saves everything. Uh, everyone else is an object, and and then you you sort of flip and 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 you see yourself as part of a collective. You too are a subject, a consumer, but also someone who has the potential to produce um, and reproduce everyday life. So, so then when, when you, when you come back to that almost like square one, how did that change your involvement with Woodbine? So you were involved with the health autonomy group, but then it seems like you were, you were also open to other aspects that impact everyday life and our quality of life. What, what had your involvement changed then? Um, besides of course, like everyone would expect you, okay, the doctor, of course he'll be involved in health autonomy. How else did you, did you view sort of your, your contribution to this collective project around autonomy? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's interesting because then as I started going through, these like non-professional, non like uh, non-health related aspects. I actually wanted to not be associated with being a doctor, right? Like I, I didn't want to be only viewed through. Oh, that's that's Frank. He does health stuff, right? You know, because like I'm a full person and I can do all these other things. Um, and so yeah, I was really involved in kind of building up the 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 strength of the collective through different projects, and you know, myself along with many other people. Uh, and yeah, kind of to your point of like, I think for me it was just an interesting. Uh, like transformation from thinking about yourselves individualistically to thinking of yourselves as a collective um, and that uh, how can I benefit the collective Uh, and this, you know, the collective with like big C, like not just here in New York city, but the comrades that we have this idea of we're building a new um, struggle and how, how does our individual experience benefit that? Um, But then as, as you, as I kept moving on, we became more, interested in not so much the theory but the materiality of the struggle and uh, looking at uh, definitely looking at uh, the zapatistas the um the zads in in france uh, a lot of the autonomous struggles down in latin america um that there is this push towards uh, building the material means that that's actually what will 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 do things and uh, looking at the zapatistas who had this idea of like 500 years of culture like they had 500 years of herbal medicines and alternative medicines and because they had been dependent on those and never had access to institutional structures of the Mexican government, they never um, uh, they they were able to build a culture that 
that uh, allowed them to take up arms. Uh, and that was like an important part. And uh, kind of we talk about in the, the Bolivian the Bolivian water riots uh, during uh, uh, was it the early 2000s, um, that the thing that made them strong was that they had this like community, the communal dinners, the neighborhood councils, like they had these structures built up um, that on the surface didn't seem that like radical, uh, but that, that gave them the structure to then kind of push further. And so as we talk more and more, we, we developed this idea of, paths like paths of autonomy or tracks of autonomy and so that health being obviously a very central one um and so you know obviously being a doctor i have a lot of skills uh, in a very certain subset um but that also you know it's unfortunate to say but like me being a doctor gives me more social credibility to like a mainstream culture um and so while i don't agree with that i think it's you should we should use it you know i have a a a high capacity to make a, a uh, uh, an income. Um, w- when I talk about ideas of revolution to people at work, um, they, they're forced to take them more seriously than people who, who maybe don't fit the professional idea. Uh, even though I consider those people to be well more versed in this idea, well more, you know, expertise on these ideas of building new cultures. Um, so it's this idea of like, you know, how do we mani- manipulate the cultures that, that we have? Um, and so, yeah, so then we started this, the health autonomy group as a way to start answering this question of, of what is health? Right. You know, how do we deprofessionalize health? Um, wh- what is the barrier? What is the difference between an expert and a non-expert? And how do we either manipulate that or how do we um, deal with it? Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, how do we give people the comfort that if they were to lose their job, if they, you know, as it is now, they, they, they don't have to go, maybe they won't, won't have to go to the hospital in the future. Um, because there is some type of autonomous clinic that they can go and, and maybe get some basic things settled. So you mentioned Zad, you mentioned Greece, Rojava, the Zapatista experience, Paul Farmer before that. And and besides the Woodbine Health Autonomy Group, for listeners that let's say are interested in starting a free clinic, or there's a big movement now for rapid response networks that can provide first aid, autonomous from police uh, 911 uh, infrastructure. Um, but for people who are interested in getting involved in, in free clinics or, or other forms of health, uh, health projects, what are, what are influences or, or, or writers, organizations, books, or other social movements that we haven't talked about yet that maybe would be helpful for people who are interested in starting these projects? Yeah, I, um, there are a bunch of books, you know, obviously a lot of theory around this. I, I was just kind of laughing to myself, like during the question, but, um, you know, one of the books that was really influential for me was called by Takun. Um, and you know, it was right around when I was feeling very depressed around the climate march and, and a friend gave it to me and it was kind of like a rainy dark night, you know, the classic movie, like, Hey, maybe you should read this. And I remember reading it just being like, uh, like, Oh my God, this is, a, you know, I've thought these thoughts, but I never had the words to, to speak them. And, um, so I, I always recommend a lot of that. Uh, we ourselves at, at Woodbine are very influenced by Takoon and Invisible Committee, uh, the work of autonomy and movements around the world. Um, definitely the work of the Zapatistas, Marcos, um, and the work coming out of, uh, the Kurdish movement. Um, and then, you know, more kind of generalized anarchist models of decentralization and mutual aid. For me, when I think about health specifically and, and ways of thinking about health, and theories behind it. I, I still recommend Pathologies of Power, uh, which is by Paul Farmer. It's one of his earlier books. Uh, always with the caveat that I don't agree w- with where they have gone now, but I think it's a good introduction into, uh, into liberation medicine, the idea of liberation medicine, and then uh, um, kind of structural uh, oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Franz Fanon was a huge influence on me, uh, especially himself being a, a psychiatrist. Um, uh, and then, uh, personally for me, doctors for global health has been very influential and on their website, uh, which is dghonline.org, I think is a lot of stuff around what is liberation medicine specifically, you know, they haven't had formalized texts, but, um, it's a very, um, it's a very simple idea. Um, and then, uh, personally for me, pedagogy of the oppressed has been really interesting in, in thinking about by Paulo Freire, about thinking about how to deprofessionalize uh, information. Right. Um, the thought that, you know, just, uh, just because I went to med school isn't necessarily bad. Like, it's not bad that I, you know, went through these institutions. Um, 
but how do I use that knowledge in a way that actually creates more autonomy for others who didn't have that choice, that mm-hmm. chance. Um, and so this is kind of the work that we do in, in Chiapas, this idea of how do we share this knowledge with those who are in struggle in a way to help support them, but not in a way that they become dependent upon us. Yeah. And, and, and so let's say for, for those who are interested in just jumping into a project, they, they have sort of a broader analysis of, of what they want to do, the context that they're working in. And, and so food CSAs, uh, social kitchens, weekly dinners, uh, there's a lot of projects going on at Woodbine. And, and so for people who are trying to get involved in, in similar projects or others around autonomy, um, where are the practical issues? How, how should people confront uh, problems around space, supplies? Should people get wages and get paid? In, in the quote-unquote activist or alternative space, how do, you, how do you all deal with that? Especially in a city like New York, where gentrification and, and the price around space is, is just so ridiculous. Bobak, that's a very difficult question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I, I think that's a fundamental question to the struggle here uh, yeah. in the U.S., to be honest. Uh, it was really interesting going to Athens where the squatting movement, uh, is very powerful where you can squat a building, uh, not pay rent. And, uh, and if you get evicted, there will be an entire movement around that. I think in some of the places in the U S there has been that, but not, you know, definitely not in New York city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so unfortunately our ways of organizing are different. Like we have to pay rent. Um, and, uh, that means that we maybe have to compromise on certain ideals. So, you know, what I would say to people who, who are interested in this idea, right, is, is find others. Um, and that's the whole idea of this, this podcast, right? So that we can, um, this is a start to a much longer journey of finding other people. Um, and so everything we think about doing is a way, how can we create better connections and deeper connections with people? Um, so, you know, we, we find comrades around the world that there are other people who are thinking these thoughts. Um, and then there's always the tangible aspects of, uh, you know, knowing your neighbors, talking to different people, um, and, uh, and not, to, not to negate kind of activist spaces, because I do think that they have an important role, um, but just to think about how you're going to use that. Um, are you going to go and, and is it a way to meet other people and, and have some support for your projects? Um, or, or are you going to get into, uh, you know, electoral politics, for example, or something like that? Which, you know, that each, each person, I think, has to answer that question for themselves. Um, and, uh, and start small. You know, we, Woodbine started way before I was involved um, with, with multiple iterations, uh, uh, you know, renting a house in the beach, having like a, a lunch, lunch in its space. Um, but it came from this desire to create lives in common. And that can also just be having weekly dinners with friends, you know, kind of similar to um, how we, we used to do, right. The like, uh, health potlucks uh, at your place and just coming together, like just have food, you know, not informal, just meet and talk. And, and from that, some beautiful projects have come out. Yeah. Um, and we have friends down in other places in Atlanta and, and uh, others who just work on, on, they have great dinners and it's like a great venue. They have parties, these huge like raves, um, that are just really popular and a really way for people to interact. Um, and then if you want, you know, if you're in the New York area, definitely look up Woodbine, woodbine.nyc, or you can email the Woodbine Health Group. The It's woodbinehealth at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook group as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, all that kind of uh, corporate BS. But uh, and 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 then, uh, yeah, you know, reach out, you know, find these other groups. Um, and obviously there are much larger groups like Standing Rock. There's the Zabatista Solidarity Groups, um, you know, if, if you're an uh, international. So does it seem, it, it seems like then the, the social aspect was, was the core uh, and, and, and that the meetings weren't entirely bogged down in sort of the logistics. I mean, a lot of times we, you know, we're in the, we're in the space, we meet people with, with you know, mutual, like projects that um, we have mutual interest in and immediately the question comes, well, how are we going to fund it? What grant should we get? Uh, but it seems like what what approach uh, you all took was just ha- keeping us social, and and then from those social encounters, we'll find ways to pull together projects that don't necessarily revolve around like a ton of money. Is that is that generally the the vibe going on at, at Woodbine? 
Yeah, I mean that's kind of you know I don't I don't want to speak for the whole collective, um, but that's that's a, like a general general vibe that we are trying to um, start from where we are and go from there. Uh, and you know the question of like do we get grant funding? Do we not get grant funding? Is always interesting. We personally don't get grant funding, um, it, partly because then uh, there are there are always compromises to money, um, and. If you don't need the money, then you don't need to become dependent on the money. And there are always interesting ways of doing things. Um, but, you know, there are the logistical aspects like we, you know, we have like Facebook and we have this the, a Patreon account because we need we do we do need money. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, people have to have jobs here in the city. So you have to have, you know, a part of your time has to go towards that. Um, so, you know, I, I never I don't want to say that everyone should get a job because I think jobs fucking suck. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. But uh, you know, we also need money, right. you know, so we have to be okay with, with being idealistic, but also practical, um, and, and finding a good balance that works for us. And one thing I would definitely, um, at least for us personally, I, I, I hesitate to do is, is this dependence on institutionalization. Um, and even, you know, I think I personally tend towards being a little bit more type A, like, you know, I come from an institution. I think that's probably how I'm, I'm infected with the institution, as they mm -hmm. say, right? So I, I probably like meetings a little bit more than other people um, because for me, that's like how it helps me think about what we're trying to do together. Um, but that also, you know, luckily there are other people in the collective who, who really push more towards, you know, that, that the social is, is still the most powerful. That if we just become a group that has boring meetings, then you're going to become a group that's like, that sucks. It, right. it won't, it doesn't answer these questions of life. You know, how do you laugh? How do you like share food? How do you take care of a sick person? It's just going to be a meeting. Um, and that's where I, I really stray away from the like activist mentality. Um, you know, but at the same time you got to get shit done. Like you got to have meetings that have agendas that respect people's time and you know, blah, blah, blah. So always a work in progress, but. Okay. So we talked a lot about how, uh, how Woodbine formed and how you got involved with Woodbine. But still, you know, a lot of people listening might think, well, no matter how much they talk, this is just another feel-good hippie project. Uh, they reject vaccines, antibiotics. They're going to use herbal therapy and yoga. Uh, or they can say that, well, this is just a tangent in the moment where it's limited to a few health issues by and for activists, and it's going to disappear once for-profit institutions or the state come up with a marketable response. Uh, but really, do you feel that such projects have to define their relationship to modern medicine? So is there something in whether you use vaccines or not, or whether you use herbs or not, which makes a space radical or a milieu radical? Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think that's a fundamental question to to what health autonomy means. It's actually like a big differentiation between uh, Eastern and Western kind of models of thought. The Western model, so like the Western model being the one that we're most familiar with, is very much that there's a problem and there's a solution to that problem. And so this is actually where I, I uh, differentiate between uh, uh, herbal medicine, for example. Um, that there are some some practitioners of herbal medicine uh, of which I am not, but that they still follow the same thought process. That uh, if you have a cough instead of an antibiotic, we're going to give you an herb, and it's still this: I have a problem, and then therefore there's a solution to that problem. But it's not kind of addressing this larger picture. And then the the more Eastern or more kind of what we would determine traditional alternative kind of practices. Um, is is more of this holistic idea that uh, an illness a cough is a representation of an imbalance in some problem so there's this uh, contextual aspect to what is going on um, and if you look at that in kind of social determinants of health model this this like public health model that a kid who has a cough um, is that because he has an infection or is that because they have uh, they they are poor and they live in cancer alley in louisiana and they're right next to all these incinerators. Is it because they are um, have old carpeting? Is they because they have mold? Because their landlord doesn't want to replace it? Um, is it because their parents smoke? Because they're stressed about their their job or their work? You know. So what are the contextual aspects of of this whole thing? And you know, for us, I th I think it's really important to be clear about what we're struggling for. 
that we are not struggling to merely replace or, or to fix the holes in the system, that we are not trying to create a better uh, Affordable Care Act or a better public health institution, that we are trying to redefine what health means and what care means for us. So how, how is it that we can create cultures of care where our, we, have, we can have families that, that are protected, uh, that we have access to clean water, to clean food, um, to air that, that doesn't cause toxins, um, but that also how can we use health to then further our struggle? Um, so uh, it, not thinking of health as just a uh, illness response, um, but as a way of being in the world. Um, and also, how, you know, how is it that our lives and, and our livelihoods can, can further protect the, the larger environment, the climate that we live in, and also think about how the indigenous think about this idea of, of seven generations, that how is it that the care that we are giving each other is actually care that we're giving to the next seven generations. Um, and so that will rely on antibiotics, you know, that will rely on vaccines, it will rely on um, herbal medicines. Uh, it will, at times, I think, rely on modern medicine. But as I think that these healthcare institutions and infrastructures become more unreliable, that I think a lot of the, the modern aspects of modern medicine, like, uh, you know, functional fMRIs or, or, you know, fancy kind of uh, laser therapies are just going to be untenable uh, for a lot of people. Um, and uh, and obviously there will be a transition period where that would be really tough. Um, but but modern medicine is very focused on intervention, um, whereas I think we should be focusing more on prevention. Um, but that, you know, we also, if there's laser therapy that we can use, we'll use it. Right. Um, and go from there. So you see it more as a transition rather than a binary. So without falling into the trap of, okay, we're only going to do Eastern medicine or we're only going to do prevention. You, do you see it more as a transition and, and how does that then change your relationship? Let's say, or, or, you know, the collective's relationship with the role of hospitals or clinics is part of a broader project. Yeah. That's an interesting way of, of, thinking about it because um there there is no like such end goal like uh the end goal being that we won't have hospitals right like i think that we probably will always have hospitals at least in our lifetime um as as long as these infrastructures are allowed to exist um because you know western medicine definitely has has a lot of uh great things about it um it can do amazing things um if if we need to um but yeah i i would also think about how do we retake hospitals, right? Like how do we transform what hospitals are? Um, and I think this is like the, the rise of community health centers where a community, a health center, like a clinic is, can be so much more than a health center that it can be a place where you have events, you know, political events or, you know, social events that you can have childcare, that you can have uh, doctors there, uh, nurses, acupuncturist herbalist um, but that there's it it adds a life to a community so that it's not just a place where illness is removed but that it's where health is actually fostered and mm -hmm. one of the criticisms that the greek clinics get uh the greek uh social clinics social spaces for care uh the the anarchist autonomous clinics get from from i guess more mainstream uh, healthcare professionals is that, well, how they can't deal with gunshot wounds. They can't deal with stabbings, uh, chemotherapy. So, uh, and, and, and a lot of alternative projects around prevention, around, uh, mutual aid, get that criticism. So for people who are interested in getting involved with these projects who come against that kind of criticism, um, what, what, what should our response be both, you know, in person and practically? I think this is a valid point, right? Uh, and I think that this is a realization that our movements should um, should accept and, and also take in because it's just a, a realistic thing that, yeah, we don't have the capacity to deal with gunshots. Um, and I think, unfortunately, when it does come as a critique from outside spaces, it's always as a way to negate, you know, oh, well, that project is not valid because it can't do the same thing as a hospital. And it's like, well, you know what? A hundred years ago, hospitals were not the same and there was a progress and that, you know, we're in that same progression. Uh, and I also think, especially with, with recent events in, in Charlottesville and, and just the rise of these militias all over the place. I mean, to me, it's, it's terrifying to see these people walking down the street with M16s and AK-47s and grenades. And 
that this is the future that we're, we're facing, right? And, and luckily, this is not Syria. We're not being firebombed out of our houses by the government. Um, but history is pretty clear that, that, that usually is kind of the progression, that these paramilitaries become more and more powerful, then they get supported by the government, and then, yeah, then we are in a position where we have to actually deal with gunshots, and, and, and how do we deal with that problem? And so this is why I think for us as a care community that we, we the positivity is, is beautiful. You know, having places of shelter and mental health care and, and community building and Sunday dinners and, and all these beautiful things that I think are really, really great. But also thinking very clearly that if this is a war, then we have to be clear that there will need to be a progression towards something stronger. Um, and so, you know, we always say that the, the why is no longer valid. It's the how. The how is the important question. It's how do we build a capacity to handle cancer? How do we handle births, deaths, reproductive rights, trauma, acute mental illness, acute um, uh, acute war? You know, any any type of uh, of uh, contextual problem that that is going to create poor health. Um, how do we build the capacity to progress to that point? Um, and and that that for me is the big question. Right. And and so besides criticisms that we might get uh, from from more mainstream uh, coworkers and and people from outside of radical milieus, there there might be criticisms from uh, from activists themselves and and other people that we might run into that look, you know, the 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 time and energy that you're putting into getting this space together and getting involved with health autonomy, you know, you're not dealing with the latest event. You're not dealing with the latest Trump tweet with the latest hospital closure. You have to be on the streets. You have to be protesting. You have to be marching, uh, helping get the next candidate elected. So how do you deal with more antagonistic politics uh, or, or, or protest-based politics or electoral politics? What's the relationship of us getting involved in, let's say, a neighborhood-based project and and broader events that draw a lot of friends into um, how do we deal with that yeah i think I, I think it's an unfortunate aspect of our culture there's this binary black and white to everything that you are either doing this or you're doing that and there's no way to think about it more holistically and so what i always say to that is like you know single pair is an example because we're talking about health but that i'm full support of single pair i think single pair is would be an amazing step forward for our country but that single payer in and of itself, the future for health autonomy cannot rely within single payer, right? Like the social democracies of Europe are failing. That they they uh, have been working and, and they have this you know more socialized or maybe single payer model that, that we do. Uh, but they are also facing the rise of the the, the far right. They are also facing climate change and, and ISIS and, and all these kind of existential Western cultural problems that single payer can't answer because it is dependent upon a system that is built upon oppression. Um, and so that's what I always say is that, uh, yeah, you know, obviously Trump is an idiot, uh, but that if you impeach Trump, you have a whole system of people behind him who are actually probably gonna be worse. And, you know, Hillary definitely would not have saved anything. And even Bernie, I think his steps would have been a, a positive step forward. And I think it would have been, you know, I would have supported those, but that electoral politics holds no future for us. Uh, and this is a main critique that that we have of say the uh, the Democratic Socialists of America is that they we cannot rely on these electoral institutions to save us. Um, and but you know if that's how people want to be involved and and they utilize that for a larger purpose, this like larger revolutionary movement, then I think it's totally valid. You know, and and politics has been used. You know, the Zapatistas are running a political candidate in the presidential election as a way to broaden their appeal um, and broaden their platform and you know but they they have no hope that if they become elected to the Mexican presidency that they're gonna somehow change the country and so I think that that's a similar way that that we have uh, that we should think about things here that that you can have a multiple faceted uh, areas of attack um, but that there has to be this central strategy and that strategy cannot be through mainstream institutions yeah Okay. Well, was there anything else that we missed or? Uh, I think I've talked enough. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I guess if you're interested in, in learning more about our groups right now, we're running a, a nourishment Skillshare. Um, and part three of our nourishment Skillshare will be about acquiring food. And that will be this Sunday at uh, Woodbine at 1882 Woodbine Street in Ridgewood uh, at five o'clock. Um, right. So there's a Facebook group. Uh, it's at uh, Woodbine Health Autonomy. 
Um, and there's also a woodbine.nyc uh, is our website. You can sign up for our mailing list. Uh, and please feel free to donate to our Patreon. We do need that cash. So, um, but yeah, please feel free to come visit us. Come for our Sunday dinners at uh, seven o'clock on every Sunday at 1882 Woodbine. And uh, yeah, if not, we hope to see you in some type of space, be that on the street, be that in an event, uh, because we, we need to find each other. So I look forward to meeting everyone. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Frank. Thank you. Take care.